Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 39. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com and click on the free book button on the homepage. Download your free Filler Up book today at Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiast. I'm very excited today to introduce my special guest, Peter Barassa. Peter, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. All right. It's great to have you here. Peter Barassa is the president of MMR, MotorsportsMarketingResources.com. MMR is an online service directory of information and entertainment for enthusiasts of European cars and motorcycles. Along with their extensive list of automotive-related resources, MMR offers a weekly newsletter filled with all sorts of things automotive, including My Word by the famous Denise McCluggage. Peter is a publisher and an entrepreneurial die-hard car guy. So Peter, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your business and your history, your interests, and of course your passion for automobiles? Well, when I was very young, say in my early teens, I developed this passion for hot rods. I loved. I lived in Canada. I lived in a small town just south of Montreal. For the months of the year where there was no snow on the ground, I just loved listening to guys uh, go by in their uh, 53 Fords with glass packs and stuff like that, and it was my dream to have something like that. I started working in a tire shop as a tire buster when I was 14. I would do that on weekends and during the summer. I got an opportunity to change tires on some of these neat cars. So, as I said, my preoccupation at the time was girls and cars. <laughs> Once I graduated, I ended up in the automotive business, and um, I loved working in, in parts stores, and so I ended up working with a manufacturer of automotive parts and made a career out of it. At some point, I was fascinated with cars and fell in love with European cars and had first British cars and eventually German and now Italian cars. Always uh, felt that this was my relaxation, what I did on weekends. At one point in my career, I worked for Champion Spark Plug. I was a sales rep, and they had a service that they provided to uh, racers on weekends at, at events. None of the other sales reps in my area had any interest in going to uh, races on weekends. Uh, the company gave me Friday off to get to a track, uh, and then the whole weekend uh, to work there and paid all my expenses. Gave me Monday off to get home and relax. So for me, this was like a great job. And I had an opportunity to work a lot of the, all kinds of races, actually. They trusted me to put spark plugs in every machine except airplanes. They, they had guys who specialized in that. So I got to work Formula One races, and I got to work boat races, motorcycle races. And I spent a lot of time at the track, and I never stopped after that. It was just like, that's a passion for me. At some point uh, later in my career, I got to that point where uh, I was, frankly, bored, and the business had changed. I've always been fascinated by people, and uh, I found that 
this wasn't going to be a people business anymore. This was going to be a dollars and cents business. And I figured I'd try something different. And my first thought was I should go back to my real passion of motorsport and solve a problem that I'd always had. It seemed to me, whatever kinds of cars I was working on, the kind of things that I wanted, the special pieces that I wanted, the things that I'd heard about that other people had, were always difficult to find. And so I thought a directory that would help people find things and other people uh, would be helpful. And that was seven years ago, and I've been building it ever since. I now have uh, 3,000 people in our directory and 350 categories of goods and services. That's my daily passion. I uh, never stop thinking about it. Um, We have the newsletter, which I work on at length, which is fascinating for me. That's a new element of of a business. It keeps going. So uh, that's what MMR and Peter Barras are all about. Well, it's a wonderful story, and it's a classic entrepreneurial story of somebody taking their passion and identifying a need, a consumer need out there, and mixing those two into something that becomes a business. And it's what Cars Yeah is all about, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, people just like you. So thanks for sharing that story. That's wonderful, and it gets us up to speed. As we continue on your journey, I'd like to share a success quote, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your success in your life. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Peter, take the wheel. You know, um, you asked me about this uh, early on, and I gave it some thought. It strikes me that there are too many cliches about just do it and uh, keep looking ahead, never look back, and all those other kinds of things. And those are uh, interesting, but they're not always applicable. It struck me that when I was younger, my mother would say to me, Peter, and she had this little piece of paper on the fridge that said, he whom the gods would punish, they first make proud. And it reminded me uh, not to be proud, or as I read in a book recently, prideful. The idea being, if you're humble, it'll serve you better. And I, I always kept that motto. And then I have a passion for uh, for Shakespeare, and I was reading Hamlet. And at some point in Hamlet, one of the characters says, he whom the gods would punish, they first make mad. And uh, I realized that um, my mother had gotten it wrong, but somehow or other she'd gotten it wrong and she'd gotten it right. Because I think if if you follow that mantra of uh, humility, uh, it stands you in far better stead over the long haul. What a wonderful memory. Your mom did get it right. And I believe pride, isn't that one of the seven deadly sins? Um, it's not one I've concentrated on, so I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful saying and, and obviously instrumental in your life and growing up. How have you incorporated that quote into your business and your life? Well, I think it's taught me to just listen. I was in a meeting recently, and uh, there were passions were flying, and I made it clear that I had very strong opinions, but they weren't particularly well-informed. And so uh, I was prepared to listen and to listen to anybody's argument, no matter how it was presented. And I think that comes from this thought of always being prepared to be humble. Just, hey, there's just much more to be gotten in uh, relationships and uh, in business, uh, et cetera, if you, if you have a sense that uh, yours is not the only opinion that, that counts. And uh, it's, it's stood me in good stead anyway. Oh, I think listening is such a key element. Over the little bit of time I've known you, I'll tell you, Peter, that's one thing I've noticed about you. You are an exceptional listener. 
I, I had worked with a, a lady many, many years ago when I was right out of college, and she was not that great at listening. And one time, she just would not stop talking. And I said, would you just listen for a moment? And she said, well, I can talk and listen at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I've always remembered that and realized that, no, you really can't, nor can I. So listening <laughs> is definitely an acquired skill and something that you have to work very hard at, really something that will serve you well all the time. So that's great. Peter, will you share a story with us when that moment in your life came that you really knew that you're a car guy, that moment in time that instigated your passion with cars? Well, this is a funny story, actually. And um, and I've told it before, so it'll, so it'll sound familiar to some. When I was a kid, I... Um, early 20s, I was racing cars. Um, I was starting to race cars. And I had a sponsor, and I had a little uh, British sports car that I raced up at the brand-new track in those days, which was called Montremblant Saint-Gervais, Le Circuit, and a fabulous track. And the first time I went to the track, I was to drive a friend's car. I, I had not really planned to race, but I had built the car with him, and my friend, uh, for a personal reason, wasn't able to go to the driving school. So I went in his stead, and he, he said, please, take the car. We worked on it. Go ahead. So I said, great. So I packed up the car, and we, in those days, you, you towed cars and, you know, with a tow bar. And I towed it up to Montremblant, and uh, I was working along in the pits on the car, trying to get it, making sure that it was okay. And one of my buddies had come with me. I noticed the guys in the next pit seemed to be having a hell of a lot more fun than I was. They were racing a Sprite, too, and they came over and borrowed a part or something like that. Now, what I didn't say is that my girlfriend was with me. She was my girlfriend, but I was her fiancé. She had very deep feelings about us being married. While I went along with it because I thought it was something that people did, I really wasn't sold on the program. And Anyway, it was fine. She was happy and all was good. But I noticed as the day went on that she got less and less happy because I seemed to be much friendlier with the guys in the next pit than she enjoyed because they were kind of a rowdy bunch but they did seem happy and funny and those are two things that really appealed to me so at the end of the day we were packing everything up and i could see there was some relief on her face one of the guys came over and said hey look we're gonna stop at the trombla hotel and uh, have a beer before we hit the road do you want to stop by so i said sure and i hadn't thought that through mm. and so there we were sitting in the car and i said to her hey look we're going to stop at the Tremblant and have a beer before we drive back. Do you want to come in? And she said, no, I'll wait here. How long are you going to be? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, <laughs> 15, 20 minutes. How to do that's, a, that's a long time to drink a beer. So about an hour and a half later, with more than one beer uh, under my belt, I climbed into the car and we drove back to uh, the little town of Saint-Jean where I'm from. And it was very, very quiet <laughs> all the way. Now bet. <laughs> now, uh, when we got to the street where I turned in to, to turn into our street to go to my house, and she was going to go home from there, she said, "You know, my father uh, has told me that when we get married, he's going to give us a new car." And I said, "Really?" She said, "Yeah." You know, he's friends with the Mercury dealer in the small town that we live in, and he says that we can go down there and, and uh, you can pick out a brand-new Cougar. I said, really? Wow, that's neat, because in those days, Cougars were Trans Am-type cars mm -hmm. and pony cars. And I said, uh, 
well, that's great. I said, well, so so we could get it with like a 289 or a 390? And she says, I don't know what those things are, but you can have whatever you want. I said, great. I said, and, and uh, convertible or a coupe? And she said, I don't care about that. You can have whatever you want. I said, great. And we can get a four-speed? She said, no, I can't drive a four-speed. Uh-oh. So I said, gee, that's too bad. <laughs> so the next morning, I sent her a dozen roses and an apology. And I told her that the wedding was off. And I knew at that moment that I was really a car guy. Now, that is the most interesting car guy answer to that question I've ever heard <laughs> by far. <laughs> that was a great story. Sadly, it's true. Well, wasn't meant to be, right? I guess not. Uh, yeah, I think not. Peter, what I want to do now is take a look at the road you've driven down and, and really crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty. Could you <laughs> share with our listeners a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career that really pushed you to a breaking point? But more importantly, how did you overcome that situation and what did you learn from it? I don't know. That's, a, that's an interesting question. I think that, the, uh, that all of us at some point, if we're just talking about our careers, um, get involved in situations where perhaps not of our making, things are not comfortable. And then, then we have to make decisions. And that happened to me, actually. I was with a very good company. I was with the Champion Spark Plug Company, as I mentioned, for years. Well, three years, actually. But in those days, that was a lot. And uh, I got to move on to be the Canadian sales manager for Ducati and La Verda Motorcycle. Ooh, nice. Yeah, it was great because uh, I loved motorcycles, but I, I never, my mother wouldn't let me have one when I was a kid, and I couldn't afford anything like that later. So anyway, they, they, we had fun with that. And the guy who uh, was the importer of the uh, motorcycles for Canada knew nothing about motorcycles. He'd never ridden one, but he was Italian. And he was proudly and passionately Italian. And so he felt that the Hondas uh, were inferior motorcycles and that the people of Canada needed to buy Ducati and Laverta motorcycles because they were Italian and obviously better. Um, as I said, he knew nothing about motorcycles. And uh, the first uh, Ducatis that we got over, got over from Italy were just absolutely By Japanese standards, they were, they were kind of antiquated, being kind. But they were fun. And so that was my start uh, working for a small company. I'd never done that before. I'd worked for Champion Spark Plug. I'd worked for an International Harvester, but never done that. Small company. They focused on, on people. It was kind of interesting. And the guy that I worked for was a charismatic character, and it was fun to be around him. But I left him because the people who distributed Suzuki in Canada at that time wanted me to be the marketing and sales manager for them. And I obviously saw that as a pretty big jump up because they sold a lot of bikes for one thing and and we didn't sell that many at Ducati. So I went to work for them. The character that owned that company, and again, this was a distributorship. Uh, Suzuki weren't in Canada directly at that time. He was a character also, but a different kind of character. He had uh, only a passing acquaintance with the truth. (laughs) It became very, very difficult to do business for him because he would promise the moon and deliver very little and and uh, the person stuck in the middle was the marketing and sales manager. Of course. And that was me. And so what happened is that by happenstance, I, I had an agreement with him that uh, I would get a decent salary, which in those days was not a lot of money, 
and I had a nice car, which is fine. Those are the two things he delivered on. But I also had a bonus structure. The bonus structure was was pretty generous, but based on on history of the company, it was just fair. But what happened is that I met a gentleman who had been marketing a new kind of TV called Quasar TVs. It was a it was a somebody that wasn't the brand, but it was a new style of TV or uh, technical enhancement. And he had put together a heck of a marketing package for uh, TV dealers. And so I met this guy uh, through the business somehow or other, and he showed me what they were doing with these TVs. And I said, boy, that sounds like a great idea. You know, the thing that motorcycle shops need is some sort of identification uh, because in those days things were just beginning. They're really mo- most motorcycle shops were one- and two-man affairs and very small, et cetera, et cetera. So I put together a package, and I ended up, selling the package to the dealers who who ended up having signs that had big Suzuki and then their name in small and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen them all over the place. Right. Uh, I also brought out point-of-purchase marketing, advertising things, and, you know, they could stick little signs on each bike and put a price on them with a -a mark-a-lot pen, and it was kind of a neat package. They went for it, and it came with the pre-ordering of a number of motorcycles. So we pretty much sold out our allotment in the pre-season um, sales show. And at that point, it was just a matter of delivering the bikes, and they hardly needed a marketing and sales manager that looked like it was going to be expensive. So this fellow called me in uh, on a Friday afternoon and said, uh, geez, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to have to. I'm, I'm letting you go. I said, okay, uh, is there a particular reason why? He said, yeah. He said, you know, uh, my feeling is that you, you're going to be a pretty big expense around here, to be honest, and I'm planning to sell the company, and I, I don't want to have your salary on the books. Mm. And uh, frankly, at this point, I don't need you. And so I said to him, you know, it's interesting. I've been here eight months, and every time I'm in this building, every time I'm here and not on the road, my stomach is upset. <laughs> and you just told me, that I'm fired, and you know what? My stomach feels fine. (laughs) And he said to me, "Um, okay, well, I have some other news for you. I know that you uh, think that I owe you a lot of money. And I said, that's true, I do. (laughs) And he said, well, it's really far more than I ever figured that it would be, and so uh, I'm not going to give you that. Oh, my goodness. And I said to him, you know, I still don't feel bad because I, I'm not at all surprised. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, is there anything you want? I said, well, could, get a, could I get a lift to the airport? And he said, sure. Oh, goodness. Wow. <laughs> so they took me to the airport. It, it, just to top off a perfect day, I arrived at the Air Canada counter, and I, I made a reservation over the telephone and so on like that. And the lady said, okay, how are you going to pay for this? I said, credit card. And as I reached into my pocket... I, I realized I'd left my wallet back at the office. Oh. And so I said to the lady, I'm terribly sorry. I said, but I, I don't have my wallet. Now this is now this will give you some idea. This is a long time ago. You couldn't do this today. She said, Well, I you know what? Um we'll tell me, give me your name, address, give me all of this other stuff and uh we'll bill you. Oh my god. And you pay us. <laughs> wow. Can you prove who you are? And I said, You know what? Um this is a custom-made suit, and my name is on the... And she said, show me. Oh, wow. I showed her that on the pocket there was a little tag that just said my name, 
and it didn't give me my address or phone number or anything. Just that. And she said, okay, that's good enough. <laughs> I'd like you to say my name is Ralph Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a story. Well, you know what? It was kind of an interesting day, and, and I never forgot the day because it was one of those days where something bad happened and a lot of good things happened. I never looked back on it and regretted it, not yeah. a bit. I think what your gut tells you many times is true, so it sounds like that was the case with that story and that experience. Thanks for sharing that with us. Peter, let's shift gears here and go to the whole other end of the spectrum. Would you share a story with us when you had a real aha moment with MMR? That time when you realized that, you know what, this idea I think is really going to make it. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. The dream of everybody that starts their own business is that there is an aha moment. That, you know, at some point you say, we've done it. And I think the reality is that it's more more that it happens in, so incrementally that you have little encouraging ahas that keep you going until the point where eventually it happens for you. For me, I think uh, just doing a resource directory and getting this information out there and then assuming that it's being used is a tough stretch. I mean, you wake up in the morning and you say, you know, nobody phoned me yesterday to say thanks. Um, And so how does it happen that you keep doing it? And the reality is that you're at events or, you know, you go to an event and you're you're wearing your MMR hat, or in my case, my MMR hat, and people say to me, I know that, son. I thought you're the guy that has that website. Hey, you know what? Um, you know the thing that you said about those guys that uh, make those special shoes and stuff? Uh, I checked that out. You're right. That was really good. I really enjoyed that. Or somebody sends you a little email every once in a while, and you get an email from somebody you've never heard of before that says, I went to the website because I was looking to find a special nut or bolt or whatever. You know, I couldn't find it in my local hardware store, and uh, but I went to your website and I found somebody there that could help me. Thank you. Mm. It's those kinds of things. Yeah, uh, the validation. Know, it's it's the little things. It's uh, As I said, the, there's no big aha. There's nobody that comes and knocks on your door, rings your bell and said, you know what, I heard about your website. I thought I'd come over here and give you a million bucks. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hear that from many entrepreneurs. The the validation, the comments, people will say something, the person that does speak up, and you go, okay, I'm reaching people, and that was my intention. So that's great, and that's a very classic aha moment with a service business like you have. Let's have a little fun here. What was your first car? And if you could share a story or two about maybe an adventure or a memory you had with that car, and maybe talk about your first special car. My first car was probably a 55 Chevy, which is kind of a quintessential hot rod. And 55 Chevys came with two 65 cubic inch engines, which probably put out about 150 horsepower max, maybe not that much. And uh, you hot rodded them in two ways. There were two basic things you had to do in the day if you were a kid with no money which is was me one was get a manifold off a 283 and that a four barrel uh put a four barrel carburetor on it and the next thing was uh remove your column shifter and make sure that you have a a floor shifter there that that made it into a real hot rod Mm -hmm. um so i did those two things and i was very very happy with the car i mean you know as quick as it was it was it was a very reliable means for me to get to work every day which is an 18 mile drive to and from and so i enjoyed that very much but after that i fell in love with british cars and i'm surprised that the that the love lasted as long as it did because it started with an mgtd mm-hmm. as fast or as 
lacking in speed as a 55 Chevy was by today's standards, an MGTD was almost moribund. The thing was, it took days to get through a time zone with something like that. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure if it put out 48 horsepower or 40 horsepower, whatever it was. It sure was interesting. But it was light. It was easy to drive. And it had this cute little floor shifter and four-speed. And it was it was fun. It was great fun. But I lived in Quebec. And uh, it's cold in Quebec for probably four months of the year anyway. And that was my car. So winter, summer, that's what I drove. Uh, in the winter, it was exceptionally cool in there. And But beyond that, the wipers were ridiculous. And we had snow and rain and stuff. The heater was virtually non-existent. And defrosting, well, defrosting meant you tried to breathe outside the door or down your shirt or something because <laughs> any breath that expelled directly onto that windshield turned into ice, so you were forever scraping it off. It was it was a real experience. Uh, I remember my best friend and I went on a fall rally one time, and it had rained like hell the night before. And uh, we were in those days, uh, dirt roads weren't that hard to find, and so rallies were considered uh, real rallies if you ran on dirt roads. And so we took you know, the MGTD and we entered this thing, and we we thought well, this was like racing stuff. And the fellow who had owned the car before me had installed uh, safety belts. And in those days, they weren't the chest type; they were just lap belts. He had affixed one side of the lap belt to the end of the door, uh, the driver's door and passenger's door. And those were like suicide doors; they opened out from the front. And uh, so we were trundling along on this dirt road and puddles and everything all over the place and I was trying to dodge them and my friend said let's have lunch and I said okay that's a good idea we can eat and move at the same time and uh, my mother had packed tuna sandwiches for us so he, he opened up the bag and he put the sandwiches like on this very thin little transmission tunnel in front of the shifter and at the moment that he put the sandwiches there I hit this incredible puddle in the road the two front wheels just went bang and the two doors opened, and those fenders on MGTDs are more old-style fenders. You know, they, they kind of flared out, mm -hmm. and the water hit the fenders. The deep water, deep, dirty, muddy water hit the fenders, bounced off the doors that were being kept at a 90-degree angle because our safety belts <laughs> were holding them there. <laughs> I see where you're going. And washed up almost like a wave over our lap and took away... Our tuna sandwich. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, those cars have a special place in my heart. My father had an MGTC 47 when I was little. Well, the only thing worse than a TD is a TC, right? Yeah, yeah but that was my, my first. I was quite young, but I remember riding on that little shelf behind him in the car. <laughs> there was a little bar You there. were little. Yeah, I was very little. My sister and I would sit there, and there was a little bar across the back of the seats, and my mom and dad would be sitting there, and yeah. he called it the chicken bar. And the reason he called it the chicken bar was he said, if you're chicken, you hang on. But if you're not chicken, you put your arms up like you're on a roller coaster. Now, you think about that now, he probably would be arrested for child endangerment. But in those days, it was different. And I do remember he said, keep your hands inside the car. Because yeah. one day I reached over and touched the tire with the tips of my fingers. And I think to this day, I still don't have fingerprints on those fingers. But I never did that again. So... The old MGs do have a special place in my heart. That's a great story. Is there a car you've had in your past that you really wish you still had? Listen, I don't want to, I'm, I'm beginning to get a feeling here that everything's a philosophy, but 
Um, and it isn't, believe me. A lot of things you get rid of in your life because you have to, and some of the things because you want to, and, and, and circumstances take care of other things. But the reality is that there isn't one car that I've sold that I didn't regret selling generally three to four years later. Hmm. But at the time that they went down the road, I can often, I often remember thinking, thank God. <laughs> um, I had a GTO that I bought in Canada, uh, not a Ferrari GTO, but a Pontiac GTO. And I bought it from my secretary because she came into my office one day and she was crying and she said, I don't think I'm going to be able to marry Gary. And I said, why not? Because I told him he had to get rid of that car. <laughs> and I said, uh-huh. And he said, nobody'd buy it. I said, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you guys want? What do you guys need to make you happy? And I remember I gave her $4,000 for that car, and that kid had spent all of that and more in the day. And the thing was hot. I mean, he had he had done cam dynamics, and, you know, he'd done some neat stuff to it, and two uh, Carter thermoquads on it. <laughs> He did about three miles to the gallon, but it was a hot car. Sure. So I gave him 4000 bucks, and because I was in the auto parts business, all of my buddies kicked in, and I put new suspension and put all, all kinds of new stuff on it that it probably didn't need, but it was all free, so that was cool. And I spent about 4000 bucks getting it all together the way I wanted. I had the car for about four years, and there's simply, I was having, we had little kids, and there was simply no room for the for the car in my life. And so I sold it, and I always remember it because, Remember that I sold it for four thousand bucks because basically that was the number that seemed to govern that car. But that's a car I regret letting go. Sure, uh, that, that was an e car. Sounds like it. Is there a current project you're working on at MMR that really has you excited right now? Every project at MMR is exciting. You know, it's because it's a development thing. You know, you, we start off as a little directory, and all of a sudden we said, "Well, why don't we do book reviews?" So, oh, that's a good idea. That's exciting. So. We did that, and that's exciting, and we have book reviews up there that we like. And, and we, we turn the books over to um, individuals who have a passion but are not necessarily, they're, they're, they have a reading passion or a passion for the car, but they're not necessarily writers. And so we, we've got a lot of reviews in there by enthusiasts, people like David Bull at Bull Publishing and uh, Michael Kaiser at Autosports Marketing. They supply the books. Everybody supplies books. Racemaker Press helped us uh, dramatically to get started, and we named our, our book reviews after them. So they send us books. We send them to enthusiasts, and we do that. So, so that's always exciting. The newsletter was another idea that we thought would be a, another way to get the people to come to or become aware of the uh, resource directory, and we started that. We would do it haphazardly once a month at some point when it was convenient, and now it's a weekly affair, and as you mentioned in the intro, uh, Denise McCluggage helps us and uh, writes with us, writes for us, and uh, a number of other people do also. Michael Furman supplies beautiful pictures. So the newsletter is kind of a lot of fun to do, and that's certainly always exciting. Our latest project is we're going to do a printed directory. It sounds counterintuitive for a website to be doing something printed, but we're going to do uh, a, a printed directory that I think highlights what the sport and what MMR is all about and it highlights people who do special things. That's that's in the works now, and we hope to have that out in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Very exciting. Awesome. Great. Now, here's an interesting question. If you were a car, <laughs> what kind of car would you be, and more importantly, why? You know, I was 
looking at I have models of the cars I really would like to have. Sure. And uh, the other day, for one of the stories we did in the newsletter, I took some pictures of uh, five of them. And it was only when I was looking at the pictures that I realized they were all race cars. <laughs> I mean, they might have been at one point production cars, but they were race cars, and that's why I had them. I'm really taken to a couple of cars in in history that I think um, are special. And one of them is the uh, Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR that Sterling Moss and Dennis Jenkinson drove in the Mille Miglia. 722. That has to be, that story, that car, that story has to be one of the more evocative of any uh, race stories. You know, these this is these are two guys in a car on the roads of Italy. And you you can travel the roads of Italy today, and, and they're pretty exciting. Can you imagine what they must have been like in the period? You know, we're talking about the 50s, and we're not talking about a, a car that, that stopped exceptionally well, but we're talking about a car that went very, very quickly. These guys drove this thing at almost 100 miles an hour average. Yeah, um, spectacular. 1,000 miles. That's, that's incredible. Right. What a special car. And why did you pick that car? Is it because of the history around it and how it was used? It's a pretty car to begin with. I mean, to start off with, if a car is ugly, um, it has... I mean, you have to really work at finding the appealing factors. I'll give you an example. There's a in our newsletter this week. We're featuring a picture of uh, the Bugatti Tank, mm-hmm. and it was aptly named. But it's one of the ugliest cars yeah, uh, that ever raced. But you know what? The more you look at that car, and the more you look at the detail on it, the more you think of the period. You know, this is a car that won Le Mans in 1937. This is a pretty advanced car for 1937. It's ugly, but it's still pretty advanced. And it did win Le Mans. So those those kind of cars, they kind of worm their way into your affection. Mm-hmm. But that you don't need that with uh, 722. I mean, that car is, first of all, it's, it's a, it's, I wouldn't call it pretty because it's not. It's a handsome car. It's a very manly car. This is a car that says, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have to be rough with me. You're gonna have to be you're gonna have to manhandle this thing. Yeah, very masculine. And, yeah, yeah, that's the word. Then you add Sterling Moss, who was unquestionably a, an incredible talent and a and, and a man who who was very competitive in spirit and Jenkinson who was a bright articulate co-pilot and you know you've got a pretty neat combination there i mean the image of it is is pretty strong and there and there, there are all kinds of paintings and drawings several of which i have of the car on the road during the race you you just when you see it you just see a complete story that's the neat thing about that car is it it's a complete story. It doesn't have to have ever done anything before or after. I remember seeing that car on the lawn at Pebble Beach and just putting my hand on the fender. I know I'm not supposed to, but just wanting to get a bit of the magic yeah. out of that fender. So that's a great story. Thank you. Peter, we're up to the last lap, and this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. Are you ready? Shoot. Okay. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Don't buy that, kid. (laughs) Okay, that's a good one. Can you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? I try not to sleep. Oh, really? (laughs) That's a tough one. I just watched an interview with a lady that wrote a book about happiness, and she said one of the most important things is to get seven hours of sleep. So are you happy? 
I'm ecstatic. Okay, good. You must be one of those that doesn't need as many hours of sleep. I envy you. Do you have a resource that you could share with our listeners that you're really fond of, besides MNR, of course, a website or a supplier, or restoration shop or forum? No, that, that's a good question. And, you know, when you consider that there are 300 people, or 3,000 people, rather, in the resource directory, that means that I've looked at at least 3,000 websites. Oh, sure. Um, but there are some that I come back to quite regularly that I really enjoy. Uh, and again, you know, I don't go to a website necessarily to to absorb the website as much as for the content. Uh, and so, you know, if you take a look at, oh, um, there's a fellow in Portugal that I met on the web on the, through the internet, and his uh, he has a company called Old Garage Cascades. And his website's exciting in a way. I mean, it's, it's it's Portugal, and he's he's got beautiful music and great imagery, and um, he sells cars, and he sells all kinds of other little things. So I enjoy his site. I enjoy all of the book sites. I think they're great. And then then you find the little surprises. Uh, again, you know, you take a look at uh, Michael Kaiser's uh, website. He's got a ton of posters from Lamar of images that he shot himself and uh, some stuff that he purchased from the from the movie uh, Lamar. He purchased the Nigel Snowden images from that movie. And uh, that always surprises me. He brings these things out and he, he turns them into posters. And he's got a couple of things on there I really enjoy. Cool. And on a regular level, I guess uh, when I want to look for F1 uh, news, I, I go to that Planet F1. I think that's pretty neat little site and not little it's a pretty neat site and yeah. it gives you the information you need about f1 great you mentioned books is there a book that you recently read that you could share with our listeners that you really enjoyed well i think this uh, interview is going to go on uh me being rather verbose about these things but i'm into books and uh, the website reflects the fact that i like books and i think books are important in life i mean they're important in my life when I think about, people are always asking me, if you've got this resource working, you've got this, you do all of these uh, book reviews and so on, you know, what are your favorite books? And I would have to say that motor racing doesn't lend itself well to fiction. There, there was a book, I heard you, I heard an interview that you did with uh, one of my favorite people, Vincent Mateus mm-hmm. um, of Sweet Steel, and he talked about a book entitled... What is it called? Something about racing. The Art of Something. Racing in the, the Rain. Art of racing, that's the Stein. Art of Racing in the Rain. Yeah, and I and I I read that book and and I thought it was okay. Um, it was it was an interesting book in a way, but it didn't have really in terms of the racing aspect. It's the title of a book, almost the title of a book, that I think is one of the best books about racing, and it's called uh, Racing in the Rain, and it's by John Horseman. John Horseman was a team manager for uh, John Wire uh, and the Gulf Porsches and the Gulf Aston Martins, etc., and the Gulf GT40s. He tells the story taking it from the beginning, from uh, Aston Martin, but going through mostly in detail about the development of the GT40 Mm -hmm. from the British side of it. Because the first race cars that Ford developed were being prepared by John Wire and his golf team in Europe, and they ran the 289 engines. The Shelby people over here ended up with the uh, 427s and had the greater development, et cetera. But listening to, we all know what happened with Shelby and Holman Moody and, and those guys and how they prepared their cars, but listening to the British side of it gives a di- different aspect to the story. But I think, uh, so, I, so I enjoyed the GT40 stuff, and then he did, when Ford stopped racing, they ended up being the developers of the uh, 917 Porsche. 
And here, the book tells the difference in a way of dealing, from a British point of view, from dealing with the Americans and dealing with the Germans. And that's fascinating. But I think the most important part of the book is that Horseman's an engineer. So he's not a romantic writer. But what he tells you about racing drivers, who are my heroes, what he tells you about their abilities, and their, and he backs it up with their times, makes you realize that there's a huge gulf between the top drivers. I'm not talking about personalities or stuff like that. But there's a huge gulf in their abilities between those very, very special, talented guys and the other guys. The other guys are, of course, far better drivers than, than you or I will ever be, and they're, they're very good racing drivers. But there were people who were special, and he backs that up in his stories by showing lap times in the same car with different guys, that kind of stuff. So I thought that was fascinating. There's, I, this is probably one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, and it's the story of the Peking to Paris race in 1907. I think there were five cars in the race. The idea was that uh, a Paris newspaper uh, put up a huge prize money in the day for somebody who could race from Peking to Paris. And I think in the end there were five cars that made it. Uh, but the two strongest cars were the one that eventually won, uh, which was an Itala, uh, owned and driven by uh, Count Borghese, mm-hmm. uh, an Italian count. And um, the fellow who writes the story got permission to sit on the fender of the car oh for goodness. the ride. For the race? Yeah, for the whole race. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Count Borghese was, was wealthy, and he he um, commanded, you know, commandeered this car from Itala and had, had them design special things like you could take the fenders off and use them for something else. And, you know, he was, he was very clever. And we're talking about, I think it was like, I think he started building the thing like in 1904, 1905, something like that. Anyway, the, the story is about the car and how they got it from Peking to Paris. And it, it, if, you, if you look at a map, what they did is they went through the top of China and through Siberia and came down through northern Europe. That's a hell of a run. And we're talking about a time when there were places they were taking that car that people had never seen an automobile. Um, I mean, they went through the Gobi Desert. <laughs> they, did, they did a lot of neat stuff. Yeah. But this, this uh, journalist was an excellent writer. And every day he would find some sort of telegraph office somewhere or other, uh, or wherever he could, and he'd send through his reports, and they were being printed in the Corriere della Sera, you know, the evening newspaper in Italy. Okay. So people followed this, and of course Borghese won, which made, was made Italians very, very proud. But in 1908, the book was published by, uh, of the journey by Luigi Barzini. The book was published in 11 languages. I have spoken to people in Italy who know nothing about cars or have no interest in it, and they told me that their grandparents and parents had a copy of that book. It was the best-selling book in Italy, short of the Bible, of course. It was the best-selling book that it was ever published in Italy. It's amazing. And you know what? It's well-written, and when you read his insightful comments about the peoples that he meets along the way, and then you listen to the 6 o'clock news, you realize just how prescient this guy was. Just unbelievable book. We'll make sure that we post these resources at carsyad.com slash Peter Barasa. 
so our listeners can find all of these. And if the book's out of print, maybe they can track one down through uh, eBay or some of the many bookstores. Well, we're up to the checkered flag here, Peter. And this last question is a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, something that you couldn't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, and money was no object, what would that car be and why? That's interesting. There's a couple of cars, of course, that I think are pretty spectacular. One of them is uh, the Alpha 8C, particularly the one that Nuvolari drove against the German cars in one. And uh, there's, a number, there's a number of them, but I, I'd have to go back to 722. I mean, there's just no way you couldn't be around that thing and think, you know, what the hell this thing went through in one day, you know. Pretty amazing. So I, I think I think that would be pretty much it. Well, Peter, you've taken us on a wonderful ride and a great journey today, and I want to thank you for sharing your stories with us. Before we go, would you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Mercedes? And then <laughs> let them know what's the best way for them to learn more about your business and then we'll say goodbye. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to give people guidance, to be blunt. There's a lot of people do that that are more professionally trained and do a better job of it. But um, I would say this. I, I learned one time from uh, a fellow who was giving a motivational speech that you should try and change your job, if not your company, but you should try and change your job every five years because that's the only way that you're going to always be challenged. And I think that that's, that was an interesting, it made for an interesting career for me. And I would urge people to, uh, to not fear uh, making the change. And so maybe that's, maybe those are the uh, condensation would be just don't fear change in your life. You might find that challenging. And as for MMR, go to MMR site, S-I-T-E dot com. Please check into the newsletter and register with us if you need anything or you think there's something that we could be doing better. Uh, feel free. Drop us a note. We just love it. Great. Well, listeners, you can find links to everything Peter shared with us today at com slash Peter Barasa or just type Peter into the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Peter, I want to thank you for being so generous with all of your time today and your expertise and sharing some wonderful experiences and stories with our listeners. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.